As you know, today is a blessed day. It's the Sabbath, the day of the Lord, the day of rest for each one of us. The day to get together, and once in a while we receive visitors, we receive pastors who come to preach. And today someone is coming from, someone who is in charge of the area of Alaska, Washington, and we feel so good that he's here, that even the weather, I think, feels good. It looks like a Washington place like that, right? Uh, Pastor Max, let me try this. I probably haven't. Max Torkelson, I did it right. I'm not going to repeat it again because I don't want to make another mistake. Beautiful. That sounds like a Peruvian last name, huh? Uh, I'm so happy you are here, Pastor, and I believe your wife is also here. She wasn't able to come. So you are by yourself. Pastor, your sister is here. Where, where, is she, is she hide? Oh, oh, you, and you both close the eyes. Oh, that, thank you. Thank you very much. Well, thank you, Pastor. We are glad you are here. He's the president for the North Pacific Union Conference. And he's very, uh, a close friend of Kat. Kat, who is in the back with a beautiful flower, and she's sitting now. Don't, you don't have to sit, Kat. It's okay. Uh, she's a, fr- I mean, he's a friend of hers, and we are blessed to have him here, and Pastor, this is the moment. May the Lord use you today, and thank you for being here with us. It's good to be here. Um, I was trying to think what I could tell you about the Northwest. We're kind of proud that Walla Walla University is in our union. That's our school, and some of you might have attended there, or some of you might want to attend there someday. But when I try to brag on the Northwest, the thing I often point out is it's the part of the United States that has the highest per capita of Seventh-day Adventist members. About one out of every 157 people that live in the Northwest belong to the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Now, that's not quite good enough. We're not satisfied with that. And we think it's going to get better even before the Lord comes. But we're blessed that the Lord has a strong work in the Northwest, many churches and schools and academies and hospitals. But what really brings me to Orange is my connection with Kat to Hawaii. So I have to say, meke aloha pumihana to you. And I wanted to mention to you that in Hawaii, I usually was not called pastor, I was called one of two names. One is Faifeao, which is the Samoan word for pastor, or kahu, which is the Hawaiian word for pastor. I especially like that term kahu because what it literally means is shepherd. And I think it's one of the nicest ways to think about a pastor, to think of them as a shepherd. So I'm used to being Kahu Max in Hawaii. And when we were at the Diamond Head Church, it actually might be about this same size, maybe a little bit smaller, has a peaked roof like this, but no walls. So the trade winds could just blow through the the church and keep you just perfect temperature. Don't have to worry about that artificial air conditioning, just the nice breeze that the Lord has provided. It's been one of the most wonderful experiences of our life when we, the years we lived in Hawaii. 
I have two daughters, and both of them that grew up in Hawaii, so they don't know that they're not Hawaiian. <laughs> and one of the people who had a big influence on them was Kathy. She is a wonderful model of gracious, graceful Hawaiian womanhood. And we wanted our daughters to be like her in many ways. And we've stayed in touch with her. And it's also an interesting point that when you have shared experiences with people, sometimes not even wonderful experiences, but it, they draw you together. And while we were there in Hawaii, Kathy's husband was killed in a motorcycle accident. And through that experience, our families and our lives were drawn even closer together than they might have otherwise. And so we've maintained a close relationship ever since. So it's a wonderful privilege for me to be here. And uh, all of you are great, but I really came because of Kath. <laughs> you know, the family of God is a great family. And it would be foolish of us to claim that it's perfect. Even God's family here on earth has some problems, doesn't it? And family's greatest need is the need to learn how to love. And so I believe that God formed two institutions that are designed to help us learn how to love. The first one is, a, is the home. Surrounded by love, we learn how to love. Unfortunately, not everybody has a wonderful home has a wonderful family. And so God has a second institution, and that's the church. Surrounded by love, we learn to love. And in the church, surrounded by loving Christians, we learn how to love Christ. I was reading a statistic not long ago that says that in the average American home, the television set or the computer is on at least six hours and 20 minutes every day. Now the most serious result of that constant connection with media is not the violence or the immorality to which we're being subjected to so much and so frequently. But I think perhaps a more concerning problem with it is that it is causing us to be isolated and to always be alone. It's just us and the TV, just us and the computer. And we're raising a generation and we're becoming a group of people who don't come together very much, who don't belong to organizations, don't have a support group of people who care and love and care for us. Um, and so in the midst of a culture that neglects organizations and aren't very much interested in organizations, it's understandable that people would say, hmm, why have a church? Um, I'll just do my own thing. You know, I can take care of myself. I'll manage by myself. Uh, I don't need an organization. I don't need to belong to something. They took a survey and they discovered that the opinion of the American public wasn't 
very high. Their confidence in the president of the country wasn't very high. And so Congress kind of gloated over that, thinking that they had the power. And then they did another survey and discovered that people's confidence in the Congress was much lower than their confidence in the president. You see, we almost instinctively are suspicious of institutions and organizations and groups of authority. So in this society that's like that, it is a legitimate question to say, why do we have a church? Why not just worship at home? Why not go to the park and sit under a tree and think about God? Why not pay my tithe where I choose to pay it? There's too many mistakes that the church leaders make. There's too much hypocrisy and imperfection in the church members. Why have a church? Well, I want to suggest to you this morning some reasons why I believe the Bible answers that question by saying, yes, I want you to have a church. And the reason is because surrounded by love, we learn to love. And in a church surrounded by loving Christians, we learn how to love Christ. That's his plan. Well, I want to emphasize, first of all, that it's God's plan. Um, we live in this time when organization isn't terribly important. You, but when you look at God, you can't do much investigation before you run into organization. You think about if you take a microscope and you start looking at the smallest thing that it's possible to see through a microscope. Get down to a thing as small as one cell. And what do you see? You see perfect organization, predictable organization. Everything is organized. If you go the opposite direction and look through a telescope out into space, what do you see? You see organization. You see planets in orbits that are predictable. You see seasons of the year. We even measure our calendar by the precision of those heavenly bodies that are, are rotating around the universe. Wherever you go and you see God, you see organization. Let's open our Bibles to Acts 2 and verse 47. Acts 2 and verse 47. Here we have the story of the early church when the church was first formed, first put into existence. And Acts 2.47 says, they were praising God and having favor with all the people and the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. There's at least two lessons just in that last sentence. You notice it says, the Lord added to the church. The idea of adding people to the church didn't come from a pastor. It didn't come from a conference office. It didn't come from Silver Spring, Maryland. It came from the Lord. The Lord added to the church. And then notice, who did he add to the church? The Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. 
there's some relationship between church membership and salvation. I like to think of the church kind of like the ark in Noah's day. Uh, I don't think the ark was a perfect vessel, do you? It couldn't have been perfect because it was built by human beings. But it was built after God's plan, and it had a reason why it existed. When the flood came, it did its part in saving God's people, and it was successful in doing that. Now the church, I'm sorry, and I actually apologize to you for the fact that the church is not a perfect organization. It's not perfect because it's full of men and women who aren't perfect. But the church is going to and is playing a part in helping God to save his people. It's part of God's plan. My sister and I are fortunate to have the dad that we do. Um, some of you might know him. But the interesting thing about him is that he's nice, and he even has a nice nose. Um, but he has a really sensitive nose. When we used to drive, we, we kind of grew up in North Dakota, and we'd be driving across that farm country, and he could smell a feedlot or a pig farm, you know, 20 miles, 50 miles away. He could smell it. And around home, he's always noticing odors in the trash can or in the refrigerator, and he's always chasing around trying to find a gas leak or thinks he smells smoke. You know, a really sensitive nose. Can you imagine what a problem Noah would have had if he had that kind of a nose? <laughs> You know, they didn't housebreak the animals before they put them in the ark. According to that description in the Bible, they didn't have very great ventilation either. Just one little window in that huge vessel. You know what I think? I don't think Noah could have stood it in that ark if it weren't for the storm that was outside the ark. And my brothers and sisters, I'm sorry... I really, truly am sorry that sometimes there are smells inside the church. But I want to tell you it's really nothing compared to the storm outside the church. You know, there's this, ter there's this ter terrible danger that those of us who are second and third and fourth generation Adventists, because we've spent our whole life inside the ark, we think it's the only place that smells. It's one of the reasons we need active evangelism all the time. Because we have new people coming into the church who can remind us that really it's much nicer inside the ark than it is outside in the storm. Now how about Christ and his church? What was Christ's attitude towards the church? Um, Revelation 21, verse 9. Look at Revelation 29, 21, verse 9. There Christ calls the church his bride. Now that's interesting. The church is the bride of Christ. It's his intention that the relationship between himself and the church be as intimate and as inseparable as what should be the relationship between a husband and a wife. 
You know, Christ loves the church. We ought to be a little bit cautious about criticizing the church. Because when we criticize the church, we're criticizing Christ's bride. And no good man wants to put up with somebody criticizing his bride, even if she deserves it. Um, another text along this line is Ephesians 5.25. We often look at this text when we're talking about family relationships. And it's the text that says, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. And of course, a primary thing to learn from that verse of scripture is that husbands are to cherish and to value and protect their wives. But you notice, as Christ loved the church. As Christians, we want Christ to be our model. And how did Christ relate to the church? He loved the church. I'll always be on the right track if I do what Christ did. And Christ loved the church. Some of us desperately want to reform the church. I actually want to reform the church. That's not a bad thing. But before we reform the church, let's be sure we love the church. Uh, we, it's pretty hard to reform an organization out of anger or bitterness. We'll only be successful in bringing revival and reformation if it's based on our love for the church. And then it says Christ gave himself for the church. I hope and I pray that God will bless each one of you who love the church. And week by week, you bring your offerings and give them, just as you did uh, a few minutes ago. Every week, you give time to the church. Thank you. We are Christ-like when we love the church and when we give ourselves for it. And you know, the church is succeeding. There's a... Physicist and statistician who's retired now, an, an Adventist by the name of Dr. Robert Brown. He was the head of the Geoscience Institute before he retired. And he did some figuring with statistics and so forth. And he, dis, he, he came up with the fact that in the last 70 years, the Seventh-day Adventist church has been growing four and a half times faster than the population. That's encouraging. We're succeeding. We're catching up. Um, four and a half times faster we're growing than the population is growing. This is in the whole world. Now, at that rate, he figured out that if we sustain that rate, growing four and a half times faster than the population, every person on the planet would be a Seventh-day Adventist in 200 years. Now, I don't think it's going to take 200 years, do you? But the point is, we're succeeding. God is blessing. The church is growing. And I like to be associated with success. And I'm going to stay associated with the church. Um, what precisely is a church? What is the purpose of the church? I want to suggest a few things that a church is not. A church is not a building. Now, I know we call this 
place where we're sitting right now, a church, don't we? But a church is really not a building. You know that during the first century after Christ, the first hundred years after Christ was here on earth, a lot of estimates suggest that there were as many as five million people became Christians. And do you know that we cannot find a single building that those five million people worshipped in? They worshipped in homes, probably, mostly, or out in the open air. And you, then you compare that to the Dark Ages. I don't know if any of you have traveled in Europe or you've, in history class, seen pictures of these magnificent, gigantic cathedrals that are built in Europe. It's a very awesome thing to visit them. But you know when those buildings were built? Was when the church was at an all-time low spiritually. The church was corrupt and wicked and evil. And what were they doing? They were building buildings. Amazing buildings, admittedly. But the church is not a building. Now be careful here because I'm going to tell you something else that you might not like, at least initially. The church is not a group of good people. And now listen carefully. I believe that we have to have standards. We have to have criteria for church membership. If we're going to belong to a church, we have to all agree that we have some things in common and some beliefs that we agree on. And then when it comes to church leadership, I think we have to have even higher standards. We have to choose the people who best exemplify, exemplify the principles of scripture to be our leaders. But I hope that our church will never set up any kind of standards for church fellowship, for church friendship. You know, they claim it happened there was a young man that was kind of a hippie type, rebellious kind of young guy living on a campus. And most of our campuses in this country have a big church real near the campus. One Sunday morning, this young man got up and you know, threw on his shorts and sandals and a tank top and decided he'd go to church. So he went to this big stately marble church that was on the edge of the campus. and walked in. He was late. Young people don't usually get up too early in the morning. So he was late. Church was already going on. He walks in. And you know how we usually sit in the church. The church isn't necessarily full, but every seat in the back and every seat in the aisle is full. So this young man walks in at the back of the church, and he's starting down the aisle looking for a place to sit, and there aren't any places. So He's kind of an informal sort of guy, just keeps walking on, gets right down to the front of the church. And of course, by this time, he has all the attention of everybody in the church watching him. And sure enough, a deacon sitting near to the back in a really nice suit and tie started walking down the aisle after the young man. No one's listening to the pastor anymore. Everyone's watching what's going to happen. The deacon walks kind of briskly right down to the front. 
looks for a moment at the young man who has sat down right there in the front, and the deacon sat down beside him and put his arm around him. Is that the kind of welcome that people receive in our churches? I hope it is. I hope that anyone, regardless of their culture, their race, their lifestyle, their language, feel welcome to be in worship with us. No standards for church fellowship. Standards for church membership, guidelines for church leadership, but everyone always welcome in the place where we worship God. Um, by the way, we ought to stop every once in a while and praise God that hypocrites are allowed in the church. When you stop and think about it, where would we join if hypocrites weren't allowed in the church? You know, I see it in you and it's hypocrisy. I find it in myself and it's room for growth. Um, what's wrong with the church? You and I. That's what's wrong with the church. The church may not be what we want it to be, but the church will always be what we are. If you want a Christ-centered church, then be a Christ-centered member. If you want a loving church, then be a loving church member. If you want a live and enthusiastic church, then be a live and enthusiastic church member. What is a church? A church is not a hierarchy. It's not a caste system where some people are more important than others, where some are first class and some are second class citizens. Turn to Matthew 23. Matthew 23 and starting with verse 8. We sometimes read this passage and, the, and it's used as kind of the text that validates the fact that we don't call our pastor father. Do you? Do you call your pastor father? Well, one of the reasons you don't is because of this verse. But there's a lot more to learn here than that. Uh, Matthew 23, 8 to 11. But be not ye called rabbi, for one is your master, even Christ, and all ye are brethren. And call no man your father upon the earth, for one is your father, which is in heaven. Neither be ye called masters, for one is your master, even Christ. But he that is greatest among you shall be your servant. The key message in that text is that the relationship that Christ wants between his people is not a relationship of master and servant, but a relationship of brother and sister. We are brothers and sisters in the church, all of us, regardless of what our jobs are or what our backgrounds are or where we came from, we are all at the foot of the cross, sitting in the church, brothers and sisters. Professionalism has always been the curse of the church. Now, I'm a leader of the church. I'm a clergyman. But I want to tell you, do not ever trust the clergy to run the church. When the church, down through history, has been taken over by clergy, it has always gone downhill. The clergy must constantly be held accountable by the members of the church. 
I urge you to participate in the, in the life of the church. And when there are business meetings and when there are constituency meetings, the clergy needs you to hold them accountable in those kinds of occasions. Now, how does it happen when professionals take over? It's when the membership isn't interested enough or active enough to become involved enough to not let it happen. Um, they, you know, when the members just become barely enough interested to give a little money to pay somebody else to do the work of the church, that's how the professionals end up taking over. And it's not a good thing. Um, Grandma had a birthday and they gave her a kind of unusual present for her birthday. It was an airplane ride. And they were going to take her in this little private plane and fly her over the countryside where she had lived her entire life. But she had never seen it from that perspective. She'd never been up in an airplane. And so they take her out to the airport. And there stood this little plane. You know, it was just a little private plane. And it looked so tiny compared to the big planes over on the other side of the airport. And Grandma wasn't really a very little lady. She was pretty big. And she said, you know, that plane is never going to get me off the ground. <laughs> and the pilot said, well, actually, we can do this. We can do this. So they got her into the plane, strapped her in. The plane roared off and took off into the sky and circled around for a little while. And the pilot was pointing out certain key landmarks around the area. And then finally, he went back to the airport, landed, pulled up, and shut off the engines. And he said, well, did you change your mind? I mean, do you think you can? this plane can get you up in the air? Well, she'd never lost very many arguments and with hardly thinking she said to him well I never put my full weight down <laughs> you know there's a lot of folks like grandma in the church not enjoying the church very much because they're not putting their full weight down you know if God has given you a spiritual gift if God has given you the ability to be a leader, you're not going to be happy until you're using that gift in the church, until you put your full weight down in the church, both feet. Don't be a half-hearted church member. Well, the church, member, the church is not a building. It's not a group of perfect people. It's not a hierarchy. What is a church? A church is a group working together to help others learn how to love Christ. Let's look at the final text I want to look at this morning. It's in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 25 and 26. 1 Corinthians 12, 25 and 26. This is a chapter, you know, that likens the church to a human body. It talks about that the church has arms and legs and eyes and ears and, and so forth, and that we all need to work together, and every part of the body is essential to the church and to the unity of the church. But then here in verse 25, it says that there should be no schism, that's like no division in the body, in the human body, 
but that the members should have the same care one for another. And whether one member suffer, all the members suffer with it, or one member be honored, all the members rejoice with it. You know, reaching the ideal that God has set for the church is so difficult is because it's so against our human nature. How about our church? When somebody is honored, do we rejoice? Uh, when somebody suffers, do we suffer with them? I don't know if you've ever spent any time around chickens. You're city people, aren't you? In the Northwest, the majority of our people live in the country. But anyway, if any of you have spent any time with chickens and observed them carefully, you notice something kind of interesting. Chickens are sort of cannibalistic. You have a chicken, especially a baby chick, and might have a little bloody spot on its head. What does the flock do? They'll start pecking at that bloody spot. And they'll keep pecking and pecking. And there isn't a very happy ending. Because most often they will peck that little baby chick to death. Do we have a church or do we have a chicken coop? When somebody is hurting, when somebody is suffering, do we peck, 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 peck them to death? Or do we love, love, love them to healing? What is a church? A church is a group working together to help others love Christ. A church is a place for healing the hurts of life. I saw a sign one time when I was visiting in the hospital. It was in an emergency room. And there was a big red sign that looked just like a stop sign. It was hanging there on the wall. And it said on this sign, the pain stops here. I just had an experience with that. My wife, in fact, the, one of the reasons she's not here today, she was planning to be here. But a few weeks ago, we were rushing around in the morning, getting ready to leave for the airport. And she had run downstairs, and I heard her stumble on the stairs, and she fell down. And she called frantically for me to come. And when I came, I could see her foot dangling off at an odd angle. And I knew she had broken her ankle. And she knew she'd broken her ankle. By the way, we found out she broke it very seriously. She broke both bones, tore both ligaments loose. She's had two surgeries on the ankle. But what did we do? Well, I helped her up as best I could. She hopped on one foot out to the door. We have to have four steps in front of our house, so she had to hop down the steps and get her in the car. And of course, all of this is excruciatingly painful when your ankle is just kind of dangling there loose. Get her in the car, take her to the emergency room, and as we drove up to the emergency room, one of the ER people came out, and they had a needle in their hand. And we were thankful because they injected some medication and very quickly, I, it seemed like almost in a few seconds, I could see Linnea start to relax because the pain started to ease. The pain stops here. Is that what happens when we come into the church? The pain starts going away 
starts fading into the background. Um, because she had these two surgeries, uh, Linnea was in the hospital, actually stayed in the hospital about five days for a little while after each surgery. And one of the things I noticed when we were there, that there wasn't a single doctor, not a single nurse, not a single assistant, not even any of the housekeeping people, no one balled her out for falling down the stairs. You know, sometimes the church gets the idea that the purpose for us being here is to ball people out for what they do wrong. Now, there might be a time and a place for all of us confronting sin in our life. But let me tell you something. When you fall down the stairs, you don't need anybody to tell you it wasn't a good idea. Any doctors here? I know there's one, my brother-in-law. Well, for you doctors, I don't, I hate to point it out to you, but your prices are getting a little high. <laughs> but you know what? As long as you keep stopping our pain, we'll keep coming. I'd like to suggest a different definition for a backslider. We usually think of backsliders as being somebody who's gone worldly or somebody who's gone in rebellion, somebody who's not very dependable or self-disciplined. I'd like to suggest that a backslider is a person whose pain the church has not stopped. A person whose pain the church has failed to stop. That's who becomes a backslider. So the church is God's ideal. It's part of his plan for teaching us how to love. Surrounded by love is the way we learn to love. Surrounded by loving Christians is the way we learn how to love Christ. I want to leave you with my favorite picture of the church. There's a certain kind of South African cattle. And they have the instinct... God created them with the instinct that when lions are on the prowl after these cattle, they form a circle, and they put their back ends in the middle of the circle, and they leave their horns pointing out on the outside of the circle. And then inside this giant circle, they have a smaller circle, and in the smaller circle are the very old and the very young and the very sick, the very weak, the very ones that the lion is most after. And so all the rest of the herd stand protecting the weak cattle that are in this inside. They stand protecting, standing between the lion and his prey, standing between the devil and the discouraged. That's the picture I would like to have of the Seventh-day Adventist Church and of the Orange Church. Would you this morning be willing to volunteer yourself to be part of that outer circle, providing loving support, standing between the devil and the discouraged? 
But then the other step of that is I'd ask us all to think about, are we willing to become part of the inner circle? Some of us would give up our lives helping somebody else, and yet we find it a little difficult to accept any help ourselves. Find it difficult to even admit that we have a problem and that we have a weakness. Well, either way, let's today, at the close of this service, make a commitment that we're gonna stay in the circle. Before we dismiss this noon, let's commit ourselves to staying in the church, staying in the circle. Let's help Christ's church become more and more what Christ wants us to be. Let's bow our heads for prayer. How we thank you this morning for the church, Father in heaven. We see mistakes and weaknesses in it, but we realize that really it's us that are mostly wrong with the church. And so we ask, first of all, that you'll come into our lives and change us into loving, caring, excited, active Christians so that we can have that kind of a church. Help us to put our full weight down, really be involved, not just half-heartedly involved. Help us to realize that even though the church isn't everything that you would have us to be, it is part of God's plan for saving this planet. And dear Lord, we pray that you'd bless your church around the world. We think especially how the church is suffering right now in Haiti. Please be close to those people particularly. Help us who live in places that are more affluent to be generous and not be selfish with what you've entrusted to us. We want to be part of a finished work. Please accept our dedication and hear our silent prayers and use us, Lord, to make the church what Christ would have it to be, we pray in Jesus' name.